Welcome back to our Streaming Science podcast series. Streaming Science is a student-driven science literacy program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Through our multimedia platform, we connect you with scientists and scientific concepts that can enrich your everyday life. I'm your host, Hannah Bork, a student studying agricultural and environmental sciences communications. In our podcasting class this spring semester, we collaborated with the Quantitative Life Sciences Initiative to bring you data scientists and the work that they are doing. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Jennifer Clark, the director of the program, and we'll learn more about her journey as a data scientist, and we'll even learn about what does big data look like. So enjoy our conversation together. Let's first start off. Tell me about yourself. I've been at the university now for five years. I was hired to enable and resource um, faculty and students working in the life sciences who um, wanted to integrate more quantitative data type skills into their research and their education. Um, My background is I have a a PhD and a master's degree in statistics, and I did postdoctoral research in North Carolina uh, in uh, bioinformatics uh, and statistics. Uh, And I was a faculty member uh, at the University of Miami uh, before coming to Nebraska. So when you came to Nebraska, you found yourself at QLSI, Quantitative Mm -hmm. Science, Quantitative Science Life Life Sciences. Life Sciences. There we go, all Uh the acronyms. Uh So tell me what QLSI is. So QLSI uh, was uh, an initiative started by uh, Chancellor Perlman uh, with support from the Office of Vice Chancellor of Research and Economic Development and uh, the Institute for Agricultural and Natural Resources, uh, primarily to uh, assist the university with hiring uh, faculty members, uh, postdoctoral scholars uh, who were um, working in the area of bringing the data sciences uh, together with the life sciences. So that, the sort of area of bringing those two together really got started um, around 2000, so maybe about 20 years ago, with um, the idea of um, being able to measure um, expression of genes, thousands of genes at the same time. And that advance in biotechnology meant that uh, scientists and students working in biology suddenly had more data than they had ever been used to seeing before. And now with the advances in genome sequencing, the data just keeps getting bigger. Um, And so uh, faculty who were trained to work in life sciences um, just weren't sure what to do with that much data because it required a certain amount of computational skills, a certain amount of uh, mathematics and statistics. Um, And so they were looking to people in the STEM fields to kind of help them. Okay, how do we work with this data? How do we analyze this much data? How do we store it? How do we uh, make it available to the public? Um, how do we interpret it so that we can write papers? And um, the university had lots of uh, faculty working in life sciences, and um, they had a lot of people working in the data sciences, but they kind of needed um, somebody to bring those two sides together and be able to communicate across those fields. And so that's where the initiative came from. It was the idea that we would hire some faculty and we would start some educational programs that 
kind of brought those two skill sets together um, so that um, kind of people in both areas would, would benefit and we would actually get value out of that data and then be able to explain it to people. So before you you found yourself at this initiative, mm-hmm. you were a statistician, mm-hmm. correct? Yep. How did, have you combined your training in expertise and uh-huh. stats <laughs> and now in this big data kind of conversation? Really just have to be willing to sit down with scientists who work in areas that you don't aren't very familiar with and be willing to ask questions. And, you know, when they start talking, you take notes and then at certain points you just say, uh, okay, wait a minute, let me rephrase what you just said because I want to make sure that there's some things that I understand and do I understand them well? And then there's certain language that they use that I may not be familiar with. So I have to say, okay, can you explain those words to me? Like, what are you actually talking about? Or what does this acronym mean? Um, and it takes, just takes some time and some patience to work out, okay, how do I communicate with these scientists and what they're doing um, so that I can explain my expertise to them in a way that they can understand. Before you had all that formal education and mm-hmm. knew the language of scientists and mathematics, mm-hmm. statistician mm-hmm. and everything, mm-hmm. was there anything as a child that you showed characteristics that you might be a scientist someday? <laughs> That's a, that's a really good question. Um, well, I think as a kid, um, the first thing I noticed was that um, I found mathematics uh, easy to understand. And I really liked um, going to math class. And uh, it seemed that it came more naturally to me um, than other students, they just had strengths in different areas. And so I started out working in mathematics. um, And then uh, I realized that I really liked to work with people. I liked to work with other students. I liked um, um, helping them with their projects. And so um, I thought, well, maybe there's a way to put my mathematics training together with my uh, willingness and and enjoyment I get from collaborating with people. And that kind of got me work starting in the statistics area. Um, So it really came out of a recognition that I enjoyed doing mathematics. And I liked working with people and that kind of spilled over into what I do now. Yeah. So was there ever a defining moment when you tied those two backgrounds of your math background into science? Like, was there an event or maybe a project that you're working on where that light bulb went off and you're, you said that, oh, I can do this? Yeah, I think, um, I think when I was in, when I was in college, uh, I think I was a junior in college and um, I realized that, you know, I had done considerable, uh, a considerable amount of coursework in mathematics, but I had also done um, a series of courses in um, in psychology and sociology, and I realized that wait a minute, um, these two areas don't have to be disjoint; they don't have to be distinct. Um, yes, you know, as colleges we we define majors as sort of separate areas of study, but they don't necessarily have to be separate. We could just combine them, and so ooh how do I combine them? Um, so I think it was a, 
recognition that I wanted to do both. And I wasn't really sure how to do both, but I had a feeling like there's got to be some way to put these two together. Um, and that's kind of when the light bulb went off and I went, oh, I should, I should be doing more statistics because I really like that area. And, ooh, that's an area where I could, I could in theory do both. I could kind of do the sciences, but I could also do math. <laughs> so I don't have to pick one. I can, I can do both at the same time. So now you're doing both. Yes. So now I'm doing both. <laughs> In At QSLI. So our topic for today kind of stems around big data uh-huh. and what the initiative is doing in that space. Mm-hmm. So how do you define big data? So um, I find the most useful definition is, you know, uh, is an amount of data that's, um, just above somebody's comfort level. So I work with all types of researchers and some of them are very comfortable with the amount of data that fits on a spreadsheet, but anything bigger than that, and they they just don't have the tools to work with it. Um, I also work with researchers who are comfortable with enough data that can fit on their personal computer, but once it gets bigger than that, they don't know what to do. So it's really that um, that shifting in scale where you go from the amount you're comfortable with to an amount that you find you're not sure what to do. You don't have the tools to work with it. That's what I would consider big data is right when it gets to the point where you just don't, aren't sure what to do with it. Um, so in terms of the initiative, what we're doing in the big data space is we're working with um, some of the federal research agencies to uh, let them know what are the challenges in the big data area? How can we um, bring scientists together and give them the tools and the techniques that they need? Um, We're discovering that different areas of science are facing the same types of challenges. So if um, someone working in the agricultural space has a lot of data and is looking to share it with other people, Probably scientists in the biological space or chemistry or earth and atmospheric sciences are having the same challenge. The data itself might be different, but it's the same data challenge. How do I share large amounts of data with somebody else? That's a basic question. And if we can solve that, then we can enable lots of different areas. Um, I work a lot with our um, high-performance computing center, um, the Holland Computing Center, which is really excellent at working with researchers and um, helping them to process data, manage data. Um, So we work with them and we hold joint events with them so that we get a broader message. So it's not just for the sciences, it's also for people um, who are doing computational work and and that extends across different disciplines so that the the kind of opportunities we have are open to everybody. That's a lot of really big topics that you just touched (laughs) on. So... I have to be honest, I am not good at math. Uh-huh. I have like struggle with it since day one. Uh-huh. So how could you try to put a visual with this big data of if it's, you talked about the computing uh-huh. center, uh-huh. what does big data look like? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. So usually when I think of, um, of big data, one way to think about it that makes sense is... Um, Movies, images, 
um, you know, we, we, our brains are really good at taking in visual information. So we can watch a movie and capture everything that's being recorded. We're, we're, our brains are really good at, um, you know, images and images are a lot of data. That's, it's a lot of stuff. So if you're, if you're at home watching Netflix and you're streaming a movie, that's an incredible amount of data that you're taking in. In your head? In your head. So when you're watching a movie, you're actually consuming a lot of data. You just don't realize it because your brain's really good at it. And when you say data, do you mean like the street is narrow, <laughs> they are walking on the left uh-huh, side? Uh-huh. Like, yep. are, Is that just like physical aspects yep. of what you're seeing and putting that in a qualitative state? Yep. yep, that's right. So your brain is taking what it's seeing, that image, and it's understanding it. It's processing it. It's looking at it and going, oh, I know what that's in that scene. I know where they are. I know where the people are. I can identify people versus cars versus buildings. I can tell who's talking. I can tell how many people are talking. All that stuff just happens automatically. We don't even think about it. But if you're asking a computer to figure that out, if you ask, if you give a movie to a computer and you ask the computer, okay, I need you to detect where are the people, uh, who's talking, can you detect um, what's a car versus a truck versus a pedestrian? That stuff is hard, right? Yeah. So, um, so we talk a lot about self-driving cars. Well, self-driving cars have to figure out what's road, what's not, what's pedestrian, where's the stop sign, which lane am I in, uh, has to sense other cars, cars versus trucks. All that stuff we do automatically, our brains do automatically, we don't really think about it. But for computers, that is really hard to do. Um, And so part of big data is taking the capacity that we have naturally in our heads and trying to give that to computers so that they can process lots of data and try to find something useful, stuff that we do normally and we don't even think about it. How do you get a computer to do that? It's hard. There's a lot of stuff that we don't even think about. So what are some of those projects that are, are partnerships with mm-hmm. people and projects with grad students? What mm-hmm. are some of those that are going on to try to get those computers to process this yeah. information? So a good example of that is, um, is the university uh, has invested in um, automated um, imaging of plants, particularly crops. So um, if you have um, different crops um, and, and different types of of corn or sorghum or soybean that you're growing um, on large amounts of fields, um, it's it's hard to keep an eye on everything that's happening. If you have a really large farm, it's tough to go around and keep track of every field and every different type of crop and check on how they're growing and how do we uh, how, when do we water uh, when do we fertilize um, all these things, especially for very large farms. And how do we um, use that information to increase food production? Does it mean we have to plant a different seed? Does it mean we have to plant at a different time? Um, and for humans to monitor all that is really tough. Um, and so we're trying to um, take pictures, take automated pictures of plants through the growing cycle and try to detect, okay, when is it best to water? When is it best to fertilize? Can we detect early signs of plant stress, signs of drought stress, and intervene um, so that the crop doesn't get damaged? And that means we have to take pictures of plants and then 
take those pictures somehow and extract useful information. And teaching computers to do that is tough. When we look at a picture of a plant, um, we can pretty much pick out pretty quickly, oh, there's a plant and there's another plant and oh, that's a leaf. And it's easy for our brains to count leaves and estimate height of plants and how many plants. For computers, that's tough, uh, particularly if the color of the plant is changing and the height of the plant is changing. And so we're trying to train computers how to do that, um, even on like a uh, field level. So if you take a picture of an entire field, can you detect areas where plants are growing well, plants are not growing well? It's easy for us to see that. We just don't have enough people to go around all the time. It's very human intensive. If you want people to go around looking at crops all the time, monitoring thousands, millions of plants, um, it'd be a lot easier if we could just take pictures. And then if something strange is going on, have the computer tell us, ooh, you need to go out to this certain field because something strange is happening. Plants don't seem to be doing well. Or, oh, you need to go to this other field because plants are doing really fantastic. So you must be doing something great that you want to keep track of, right? Um, so we're training these computers to be more efficient for humans, correct? Yes, exactly. We're training computers to do stuff for people uh, that's more effective and more efficient um, so that we can sort of make the whole process of agriculture more efficient. I feel like as someone who's um, just in college right now, I've seen mm -hmm. a lot of cool new ag technologies. Has that increased recently or is that just something that's been going on over a long period of time? We're talking yeah. about how increasing technology has yeah. maybe been more rapid right, recently. Right. I think, I think that the agricultural community um, has always um, had a certain segment that were, that, you know, were the early adopters, the people who are always looking for new technology and the, the rate of advancement in technology was was pretty regular and pretty even, um, I think, up until probably in the last five years. In the last five years, the rate of new technologies has just exploded. Um, I think there's there's good reasons for that. So one reason is that um, that computational capacity, the ability to collect lots of data and process it has increased. So the cost of computing has gone down tremendously. And lots of farms that were not previously connected by internet or wireless are now connected. And so, wow, they can collect data and they have, and they can afford to process it and get information out of it. Fantastic. And the other part is that, um, that sensor technology has developed a lot and it's gotten a lot less expensive. So the cost of putting a sensor in the field and collecting information about soil health or weather has gotten much cheaper. So I would say within the last five years, there's been a real explosion in trying to bring technology to the farming community. That's pretty cool that to think that the work that you're doing in the lab or mm -hmm. um, in the field is directly impacting farmers' bottom line, which is in turn improving all of agriculture. Right. So speaking of the lab, a lot of times when we think of a scientist, we stereotype them as that old gray man that's got the crazy <laughs> hair and the white lab coat. That is not true in your case <laughs> by any means. So talk to me about how your role or 
you're maybe changing the stereotype of a scientist because mm-hmm. you're not doing that nitty gritty <laughs> lab work in a white coat. And maybe right. you do, right. <laughs> but in your right. science rule, you're not you're not in that stereotype. Yes. So talk yes. about how you're it's, changing that. It would that. be hard for me to pull off the Einstein look. <laughs> That's um, who I was referencing. So, right, exactly. So yeah, I know that look. It'd be hard for me to pull that off. Um, I think the the way to change the... Um, the way to change the stereotype is to um, first try to be, you know, the best scientist you can be. So um, when I'm talking with other um, other people in science or even uh, other stakeholders, people who, who are outside of the university, um, the first thing is to, you know, learn to communicate well, learn to listen, um, uh, make sure that, you know, you have become an expert in your own field. So you can talk to other experts, you understand what they're saying, you can contribute to the conversation. Um, and then second, people will realize, wait a minute, this person doesn't look <laughs> or talk like my stereotypical idea of a scientist, um, but that's kind of interesting. And ooh, maybe I should talk more with this person. Um, so the, the real key is just to learn to sit down and listen and communicate. And then lead by example, you know, be willing to go into conferences and meetings where you don't look like everybody else. That's fine. There's nothing stopping you from contributing to the conversation. Um, just sitting down, introducing yourself and, um, getting to know the other people in the room. Um, and you know, you find out pretty quickly that, Oh, wow. They really just are sitting here trying to solve problems, get stuff done. And so am I. So we have, already a shared interest. Just the fact that we're all in the same room means we have a shared interest. So we've seen a lot of conversations recently focus on encouraging kids to go into the STEM fields. Mm-hmm. So if I was a fifth grader, what would you tell me is the coolest or most interesting part of your job to encourage me to become a scientist? Mm. Uh, so I think um, the best message to tell kids is that um, by going into STEM fields, you can um, you can find answers to any question that interests you. So, uh, you know, if your favorite animal is a turtle, great. Uh, how do turtles work? What do they eat? Where do they like to live? Um, what type of environment makes them happy? These are questions that you can answer. Uh, you can kind of just go after whatever questions you find most fascinating. Um, and kids tend to respond to that. The idea that, ooh, if there's something that I'm interested in, I can I can pursue that. I can pick something that I like and go after it. And I can, wow, find answers to questions. And the really cool part is that you find an answer to a question. And usually that answer gives you another question that you're interested in. And you can go after that. So I kind of try to tap into their curiosity um, and say, look, this is an area where you can satisfy that curiosity and there'll always be cool new questions that you'll want answers to. And so it kind of just perpetuates itself. Running out of time here, but to wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to add around the topic of big data, your role, some Mm -hmm. of your goals? The mic is yours. Uh, I think the only thing I would add is that... um, that the university has uh, 
has really done some great things in um, in education uh, for students, both undergrads and graduates, and also um, distance learning to engage the broader community. So our extension does some great work in bringing in stakeholders and and. I think the university has put an emphasis on not just educating our students, but educating uh, the broader community of Nebraska. And that's something that I want to make sure that listeners recognize that we really do put um, an emphasis on, on, on the state and, and our stakeholders in Nebraska and the importance of, of our Nebraska community. So one thing I want to emphasize. That's a really great place to end. So thank you, Dr. Clark, for joining me today. If people want to learn more, where can they do that? Well, we have a website up where people can learn more information. It's bigdata.unl.edu. You can go there and we has all my contact information and also announcements about different programs on the campus. So uh, people can feel free to contact us and get involved. Thanks for hanging out with us today as we learn more about Dr. Clark and her role as the director of QLSI. Find more from Streaming Science on Twitter at StreamingSci or online at StreamingScience.com.